the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation today with Johannes, let me get this right, Veen Malm Defans. Or something very like that. He's legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom and a member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. We'll talk about an Oregon mother's court um, challenge to stop politically motivated adoption processes here in the state that could have wide ranging implications. We'll also talk with Jeff King, president of International Christian Concern. We'll talk about the uh, Gazan Christians who are caught in the middle and he'll describe what the situation is there uh, like there. International Christian Concern. Uh, does ministry for and um, brings the stories of persecuted Christians from around the world to the uh, general public. And we'll talk about these refugees uh, who are caught in the middle in uh, in Gaza. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, we learned today that 16 hostages were released by Hamas, including one American citizen with dual citizenship. Twelve of the hostages were Israeli citizens, including 49-year-old Liet Benin Atzil, who is a dual Israeli-American citizen. Four other hostages were Thai nationals, but their identities have not been re- released. Uh, one 54-year-old, a 57-year-old, a 36-year-old were on the list to be released as hostages. Other captives that were transported to Israel on Wednesday include a 40-year-old, an 18, uh, two 18-year-olds, a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, um, and uh, 50, 73-year-old. give you just a slight idea of who was among those who were released earlier today. There was some speculation that the ceasefire would be extended for an additional four days. We have not heard word on that yet. Otherwise, it will have expired this evening, local time in Israel. Uh, and the uh, uh, the effort to annihilate Hamas will continue. We'll keep you updated if uh, information is made available uh, during the time of this program. Suzanne Bowdy wrote a piece just recently asking the question, saying, I can't even imagine how many Hamas and Hezbollah cells are in the country right now, referring to, well, the United States. As more hostages walk out of their underground jail to freedom, the rosy picture of Hamas gentle treatment is starting to unravel, while 85-year-old praised her captors back in October for the regular food, medical care, and beds. Others are telling a different story. A 12-year-old girl uh, was tortured during uh, her confinement, her, her um, a grandmother says, beaten, forced at gunfire to or gunpoint, rather, to watch videos of Hamas atrocities and threatened with death uh, when she and other children cried, left by herself in darkness for 16 days. Um, she has trouble speaking now. Nine-year-old Emily Ward, whose dad made headlines for his profound relief that she was uh, thought dead and not in terrorist hands, only to learn his worst fears had come true, tells reporters that he has trouble hearing her since her release. After bear-hugging the daughter he uh, thought was forever gone, he admitted the most shocking, disturbing part of meeting her was she was just whispering. I couldn't hear her. I had to put my ear to her lips. 
like this close and say, what did you say? She was unable to raise her voice. Well, the full picture of nightmares we may never know, but as former Israeli Defense Forces Major Amir Tsafradi uh, pointed out, we know enough. These are unspeakable crimes against humanity, he insisted, performed by bloodthirsty people that have no regard for human life and have no intention to have any peace with us at all. And Israel, for the longest time, tried to appease them by giving them jobs within Israel, by allowing money to flow in. But this um, monster rose one morning and tried to devour us, end quote. He's referring, of course, to Hamas. Well, now he warns we are fighting right now a battle between two things. One, we have the largest terror base on the planet Earth in Hamas. And in the north, we have the largest or strongest terror organization on the planet Earth, Hezbollah. We're sandwiched right in between them, he explained on Washington Watch. And as Family Research Council President Tony Perkins pointed out, Israel isn't exactly a big parcel of land. No, Amir agreed. The uh, And after October 7th, the country has started to realize there is no way we can live that um, uh, even a day longer. So we're trying to do what we should have done long ago, and we didn't because of international pressure, which gives you a glimpse into the likelihood that Israel is going to bow to pressure, even from the United States, uh, to simply call an end to their effort to remove Hamas. But that pressure is building again, Perkins says, even from America. The Biden administration is pushing for pushing rather for quote um, unquote pause. It stopped Israel from taking care of business. And what's happening as a result, Safari asked, the Israeli troops in Gaza are seeing, watching, looking at Hamas terrorists regrouping and reorganizing right now. We say we cannot shoot them, but we see what we're um, Uh, what they're planning for us. And once this pause is over, the threat is far greater than what it would have been before. This was a terrible mistake to stop right now, he went on to say. Well, in the meantime, Amir insists what happened on October 7th was caused or has caused a tectonic shift of many plates and many levels all around the world. And we're watching it happen from the protests to counter protests. A lot of countries are now dealing with built in anti-Semitism that they've um, had for many years. And now it's rising. Ultimately, he knows that uh, they have to choose between Jewish people that we know are not posing any harm for um, uh, for our country versus uh, others uh, who are. They're afraid of them. They're afraid of uh, them in France. They're afraid of them in Belgium and in the Netherlands, referring to the Muslim population there. For years, Jews have been under the impression that they could coexist with their foes who want to eliminate them. Safari re- uh, repeated, no, that is not the case. We have to live without and uh, with that enemy on um, on the other side. But also he points out Jews are waking up to the reality that there is no safe place for them as Jews uh, than Israel. Ironically, the Jewish people have been among the most liberal voices in America and in Western Europe, he pointed out. And right now they see that being liberal is not enough. Being progressive is not enough. They hate me for being a Jew, even though they um, profess to be progressive. It's created a very explosive environment for the West, he went on to write, which is facing some very pivotal decisions. I believe God is testing the nation right now, Amir insisted. Uh, He's testing the nations. He's testing the believers, his people, on where they stand with Israel. Look, when I began to travel around the world, God showed me wherever you go, look at what they uh, teach about Israel, and you will know the spiritual state of that church, because it's like a litmus test. It's amazing, end quote. But it's not just Israel in the uh, crosshairs, Safari urged. It's Christians, too. Those terrorists always say the Saturday people are first, the Sunday people are next. They use that term. They don't. Uh, even hide it. And I mean, Europe 
must wake up. America must wake up. America has thousands of sleeping cells all across the country. Your southern border is so open, he shook his head. I can't even imagine how many Hezbollah and Hamas cells are in your country right now. They're testing you. And look, they waited and waited and waited and deceived us and deceived the whole area that they uh, they were deterred and not going to um, a pause there to pounce. And then, boom, one day they strike. I hope America is going to wake up. Uh, to understand that you are in a crisis right now, he cautioned. And if this country is going to survive, you know what uh, you need to do next November. Susan Bowdy serves as the editorial director and senior writer for The Washington Stand, which uh, is a publication of the uh, uh, the Washington organization whose name just slipped my um, Washington watch. In any event, um, raises some very interesting questions about what the future holds. And again, that ceasefire may have come to an end. We'll let you know if uh, we have a confirmation on that before the program ends today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, the United Postal Service is blaming unexpectedly high historic inflation for a major portion of its $6.5 billion loss in fiscal year 2023 that ended on the 30th of September. The Postmaster General and CEO, Lois um, DeJoy, detailed the harmful impact of the historic inflationary environment during an open season, open session rather. It was a meeting of the Postal Service Board of Governors held earlier this month. Our efforts to grow revenue and reduce labor and transportation costs were simply not enough to overturn our costs to stabilize our organization. The historical inflationary environments we encountered and our inability to obtain the civil service retirement system reform we sought, none of which were accounted for in our forecasts. Well, in its 10-year Delivering for America plan, uh, the United States Postal Service forecasted that it would break even in fiscal year 23. Instead, it suffered the $6.5 billion net loss. Fully $2.6 billion, or 40% of that loss, was caused by inflation above what we expected, DeJoy explained. In addition, this year's loss includes $2.6 billion in inflation above what we projected and what we were able to recover, as our pricing adjustments are not proportional to our costs and are garnered after we have already been impacted by the inflation. Well, over the past three fiscal years, inflation has cost nearly $8 billion more than the uh, Postal Service planned a plan rather had projected. In fact, for the three years since the release of this plan, we've taken what was projected to be between 34 and 39 billion dollars in losses and um, reduced them by half to 18.8 billion, despite incurring 7.2 billion dollars in costs expected to be eliminated and nearly 8 billion in inflation above our planned inflation and corresponding revenue authority. So you can anticipate your stamps are going to cost a little bit more. It might be cheaper to just hop in the car and drive to Ohio to drop off your bill uh, than to uh, send it USPS at this rate. Well, a coalition of nearly 4,000 auto dealers on Tuesday sent a letter to the president explaining why he plans to force Americans into electric vehicles are unworkable. The bottom line, despite subsidies to car manufacturers to make EVs and tax credits for drivers to buy the cars, Only 7% of the new vehicle sales are electric vehicles, compared with Biden's goal of 60% in 2030 and 66% two years later. Well, the auto dealers wrote that the supply of unsold battery electric vehicles is surging as they're not selling nearly as fast as they are arriving at our dealerships, even with deep price cuts, manufacturer incentives and generous government incentives. 
Their letter follows the announcement last month from GM and Ford that they're cutting back on projections of EV sales and lowering production targets for the cars and the batteries because Americans prefer to buy other cars. Ford Chief Financial Officer John Lawler, who postponed $12 billion in EV investments, said, given the dynamic EV environment, we're being judicious about our production and adjusting future capacity to better match market demand. Also, GM described evolving EV demand as a reason for slowing production of electric pickup trucks. Ford and GM describe EV demand as dynamic, dynamic rather, and evolving, but in reality, it's static and devolving. Auto dealers are getting stuck with the unwanted cars. Dealers have to pay in advance, and if the cars sit on the lots without being sold, their funds are tied up and they don't have room for better selling vehicles. Because Congress will not pass laws mandating purchases of EVs, Biden has proposed regulations from the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency. These regulations would penalize automakers for selling gasoline-powered cars. Talk about between a rock and a hard place. California is going further, requiring all new vehicle sales to be electric by 2035. But as the dealers say in their letter, some customers are in the market for electric vehicles and we're thrilled to sell them. But the majority of customers are simply not ready to make that change. Arizona State University President Michael Crow, he believes we're in such danger that we should amend the U.S. Constitution to empower the government to deal more expansively with climate change. His view that constitutional protections of our liberties should be eliminated when they become inconvenient wouldn't square with the founders, but his estimate of the dangers and required remedies for our changing climate are quite mainstream in our society today. Well, net zero by 2050 has become an article of faith among our corporate and academic elites, no longer requiring proof or intellectual defense. The notion that we must eliminate or offset all carbon emissions by mid-century if we want to save the planet is the organizing principle for ESG investing. ESG is the consideration of environmental issues, social issues, and corporate governance issues when deciding what companies to invest in. In 2022, it was mentioned more than 6,000 times in corporate filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Well, the SEC has helpfully proposed climate disclosure rules for companies to help investors evaluate the progress in meeting net zero emissions and assessing any associated risk. Skeptics are sidelined as climate deniers. But mounting scientific evidence suggests that net zero is widely impractical and probably not even achievable. In September, the Electric Power Research Institute, the research arm of the U.S. electric power industry, which would seem to be naturally inclined to support proposals that increase reliance on electricity, released a sober report on the practicality of net zero. Their study concluded that clean electricity plus direct electrification and efficiency are not sufficient by themselves to achieve net zero economy wide emissions. Translation, it can't be done no matter Uh, No amount of wind turbines, solar panels, battery power, fossil fuel, or other available technologies will achieve net zero by 2050. Also, even deep carbonization, drastic reduction in atmospheric carbon levels is an impossible dream. With natural gas and nuclear generation forced to the sidelines, that would require options like carbon removal technologies, which would cost a quadrillion million billion dollars, by the way, which would, well... You get the picture. Finally, the report concludes living in a net zero world may not be all that great. Supply chain operating only on electricity and the reliability and resiliency of a net zero electricity grid could be highly problematic. 
The response to this nonpartisan and obviously consequential report was, yeah, silence. There's been essentially no media coverage. No climate activists rushed to dispute the methodology nor challenge the conclusions. There's nothing to see here, folks. This is a significant tell. You could assume if the eco-activists were genuinely concerned about our climate future, they would have some interest in responding to this major challenge to their assumptions, but they ignored it to cling to their group think. Yet other indications that the transition to renewable fuels rather is already off the tracks keeps coming. The government-certified North American Electric Reliability Corporation recently issued its 2022 long-term reliability assessment. It concluded that fossil fuel plants were being removed from the grid too quickly to meet electricity demand, putting us at risk for energy shortages and even blackouts during extreme weather. But wait, there's more. PGM International, a large grid operator in the Northeast, recently released projections indicating it will soon lose 40,000 megawatts or 21 percent of its generation capacity. The looming plant closures are mostly policy driven by onerous Environmental Protection Agency regulations and mandatory ESG commitments. Renewables, although lavishly subsidized by government to replace the lost electricity, consistently underperform and will be able to produce at most half of the electricity lost. Meanwhile, the government is uh, perversely mandating electric vehicles, appliances, and whatever they will drain more electricity from the grid precisely when the grid has less to give. Well, finally, the repeated assertions of settled science when it comes to climate change were unsettled by 1,609 scientists and professors worldwide signing a no-climate-emergency declaration. The document was issued by Climate Intelligence, or Kleintel, a nonpartisan, self-funded, independent organization of scholars whose only agenda is to generate knowledge and understanding of the causes and effects of climate change and climate policy. Well, the scholars pointed out that there's um, no basis for claiming an upcoming existential crisis. Carbon dioxide is not primarily a pollutant, but a necessary basis for life. Moreover, there's no statistical evidence that global warming is intensifying natural disasters. Panic is dangerous with the potential to plunge us into perpetual poverty. They charge that climate science has degenerated into a discussion based on unsubstantiated beliefs, not on self-critical science. Historians of the future reflecting on our era of hyper-politicized science will undoubtedly agree. A rather interesting uh, study. Well, the House of Representatives on Tuesday voted uh, on reaffirming Israel's right to exist and condemning the terrorist group Hamas revealed division among the members of the far-left squad. Representative Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan, Representative Cory Bush, the Democrat from Missouri, were the only members of the radical eight-person group to not vote in favor of House Resolution 888, which centered on Israel's existence. Tlaib was the only House member who chose to vote present, while Bush didn't vote. Bush similarly didn't vote on House Resolution 793, which condemned Hamas' brutal October 7th attack against Israel and demanded the immediate release of the remaining hostages taken in the attack. However, Tlaib joined the rest of her squad colleagues in voting for the resolution, despite her past refusal to condemn the attack. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. But I do want to remind you, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll have a conversation with a legal counsel from Alliance Defending Freedom, a member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives on an Oregon mother who's challenging the court to stop politicizing 
adoption processes here in Oregon. We'll also talk with the president of International Christian Concern, Jeff King, on the suffering in the Gazan Strip of Christians, a very small community, but they are struggling. We'll find out how. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom of California and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, both of whom have presidential aspirations, have been trading fire for nearly two years. They're going to tangle once again this week, but this time their slugfest will be in person. DeSantis, who's running for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, and Newsom, who Republican critics charge is running a shadow campaign for the White House, even though he repeatedly stomps on such speculations as ridiculous, will face off Thursday in a debate moderated by Fox News primetime opinion host Sean Hannity. The showdown titled DeSantis versus Newsom, the great red versus blue state debate, will take place at the... uh, Alpharetta uh, in Alpharetta, Georgia, a one time red state that's become a top general election battleground between the two major political parties. He caters to a very far left slice of the electorate. I think that will be on display when we have the debate, DeSantis says, as he spoke um, in anticipation. Newsom, in an appearance on Fox News, Hannity earlier uh, this fall pointed toward DeSantis and emphasized that I don't like people who demonize other people or go after vulnerable communities. I also don't like liars. Well, both governors of outsized national profiles run the uh, uh, nation's first and third most populous states and overwhelmingly won gubernatorial reelection last year when their rivalry really heated up. In 22, Newsom went up uh, with an ad on Florida airwaves that targeted DeSantis culture war approach to politics and Uh, policies. Freedom is under attack in your state. Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote, restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors, Newsom argued in his spot running in Florida as the California governor. DeSantis, who became a hero to conservatives nationwide for his pushback against coronavirus pandemic restrictions earlier this year, called San Francisco, the city where Newsom served two terms as mayor, a dumpster fire. Well, you get the general idea. It's going to be something of a back and forth. While Newsom has repeatedly shot down speculation he would run for the White House next year, should something happen to Biden, a well-publicized trip by the California governor to Israel and China last month sparked further speculation about his possible 2024 ambitions. DeSantis, speaking on Fox News Digital, argued that I've been warning Republican voters it may not be Biden in 2024. Well, it's all going to be... Um, Part of a showdown on Thursday on the um, Sean Hannity program, if you're interested in seeing the two face off. It's about more than just these two individuals. They are governor of the two, uh, two of the more populous states, a red state, blue state, facing off. Should be rather interesting. Well, a Black Lives Matter leader threw his support behind former President Trump in the 2024 race for the White House, accusing Democrats of racist policies that are working against the black community. Mark Fisher, who is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Rhode Island, discussed why some black voters are leaving the Democrats as they contemplate who they'll vote for in the 2024 presidential election, saying it's the duplicity of the Democrats, the hypocrisy, end quote. 
Fisher told Lawrence Jones on Tuesday, we're not stupid. The brothers are not stupid. We understand when someone's for us and when someone is not. And it's obvious that the Democratic Party is not for us, end quote. Well, the policies actually strike at the heart of the black family and the nuclear family, he continued. Fisher argued Democrats don't value the black vote during an interview earlier this month while praising Trump for advocating policies to uplift the community. We've been used and abused for so long by that party, referring to the Democrats. They don't value our vote. Their policies are basically racist policies. I believe it's a racist party. He went on to say Donald Trump is just the opposite. He's going to tell you how it is. He's going to give you give it to you straight. End quote. Now, this has to be alarming to many. It's not um, a surprise that black voters are not supporting Donald Trump or not supporting Joe Biden, but it might be something of a surprise to consider that some may in fact be voting for Donald Trump. Consuming certain foods and drinks could put people at a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer. That's according to a new study published in the journal Nutrients. Researchers from the Zeitjiang University School of Medicine in China analyzed 139 dietary factors and their impact on the risk of developing colorectal cancer. The participants included 118,210 people who participated in the long-running UK biobank study, all of whom completed online questionnaires about their food intake. Well, after a mean follow-up of 12.8 years, the researchers identified eight foods that were known, uh, rather shown to influence CRC risk. Well, the first two, alcohol and white bread, were found to increase the risk regardless of genetic factors. Previous studies also linked alcohol with increased cancer risk. Ethanol in any form, any type of alcohol beverage is known as a known risk factor for colorectal cancer because elements in alcohol have been evaluated as a human carcinogen by the International Agency for Research, the study authors wrote. The other six dietary elements, fiber, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, manganese, and carbohydrate intake, were all found to lower the risk of colorectal cancer, the researchers found. The findings of this study reaffirmed the well-established connection between lifestyle and dietary choices and the prevention of colorectal cancer. That particular cancer is the third most common type of cancer among U.S. adults, according to the American Cancer Society. A diet that is low in um, in fruits, vegetable and fiber or high in fat and processed meats can contribute to a higher risk, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And again, alcohol consumption and tobacco use can also increase the risk, the health agency stated. Well, the Biden administration quietly granted a request from an energy firm developing an offshore wind project off the coast of Massachusetts to waive development fees designed to safeguard taxpayers. According to an internal document uh, made available, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM, uh, informed Vineyard Wind that it had waived a financial assurance for decommissioning costs fees in a June 15, 2021 letter obtained by the watchdog group Protect the Public's Trust. Federal statute mandates that developers pay that fee prior to construction on their lease. A potentially hefty fee designed to guarantee federal property is returned to its original state after a leasee departs its lease. Well, at the same time, the Department of the Interior was looking at uh, forcing greater and more expensive bonding requirements on holders of longstanding oil and gas leases. They were relaxing these requirements on the nation's first utility-scale offshore wind energy producers, one that just coincidentally happened to be a client of their incoming number two director, Michael Chamberlain. 
Well, if you want to talk about bad optics, I don't see how they could uh, be any worse than right now, he said. For an administration touting itself as the most ethical in history, this represents yet another incident in which Secretary Hallen's interior appears to have a tough time living up to that standard. Well, Congress is feeling the heat from more than a dozen conservative groups that are calling for the passage of the National Defense Appropriations Act or the NDAA amendment to government contracts with the Chinese Communist Party linked biotech firm. Sixteen conservative groups sent a letter to senators and House lawmakers calling on them to pass the NDAA provision to ban contracts with adversarial biotech companies, specifically China's Beijing Genomics Institute. The amendments are led by Republican Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee and Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Gallagher, chairman of the House Select Committee on the A communist Chinese party said the Beijing Genomics Institute collects genetic data on people all over the world to include that of pregnant women and uses it to research with the Chinese military. He warned that the communist Chinese party will undoubtedly use the genetic data collected by BGI to further its malign aggression, potentially even to develop a bioweapon used to target the American people. The good news is that the, that Congress can do something about it. Senator Haggerty and I are working to prohibit the U.S. government and those that contract with the U.S. government from acquiring genetic sequencing equipment from BGI and its subsidiaries in this year's National Defense Authorization amendment, he went on to say. The group who signed on to the letter include Heritage Action, Americans for Limited Government, the Benjamin Rush Institute, and Frontiers of Freedom, among others. In their November 17th letter, the group say the provision would establish necessary safeguards to ensure that Americans' genomic information is protected from potential malign actors seeking to amass and leverage this sensitive personal information to achieve economic and national security goals. Apparently, they use that uh, genomic information to tailor bioweapons to certain populations. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer likely doesn't uh, have the votes to pass President Biden's $106 billion national security supplemental package, as is, according to Senator Rick Scott. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a break. Also want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk with legal counsel from Alliance Defending Freedom on a lawsuit uh, pending in Oregon, a mom who wants to adopt children, but the requirements make her disqualified. She's challenging That requirement is unconstitutional. And we'll talk with the president, Jeff King, of International Christian Concern on Christians in the Gaza Strip who are suffering as a consequence of hostilities there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Johannes, let me get his name right, Viedmalm Davans or something very like that. Legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom on an Oregon mother challenging Oregon law on adopting children. And Jeff King, president of International Christian Concern on Christians in the Gazan Strip. There are only about 800 of them, but they are struggling between a rock and a hard place uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, as I mentioned early, likely doesn't have the votes to pass the president's $106 billion national security supplemental package, as is, That's according to Rick Scott, the senator 
Uh, from Florida, Senate uh, Republicans have been rallying behind adding Border Patrol agents and tougher asylum processing standards, but Democrats have signaled they're not interested in changing border policy. They're going to have to be significant border security, Scott. A member of the Homeland Security Committee said the border is a clear and present danger to the security of every American, and I think every Republican, and hopefully some Democrats, understand that, he said. Well, the question, Scott, went on to say, resolves around revolves around whether Republicans will opt for straightforward modifications, expecting Biden to adhere to the law, or whether Ukraine aid could be contingent upon a decrease in border crossings. Schumer would need uh, nine Republican votes to alongside Democrats for the package to make it out of the Senate. Scott said no one is objecting to stronger border measures among the GOP. The package could get a vote as early as next week, Democrats in the upper chamber have a 51-49 majority, and any legislation will need to uh, need at least 60 votes to advance. Any agreement will need to pass the GOP-controlled House before it makes uh, makes it to the president's desk. Well, unfortunately, the $600 threshold is so low that it will capture transactions that would normally not be reported and likely would not create any tax liability. We're talking about the new change in the law with regard to uh, some of these um, pay apps that uh, that folks are using, just regular folks. For example, a woman who used online platforms to sell a used sofa, uh, split the check for dinner and drinks with friends a few times and consigned a few old dresses could easily surpass that $600 threshold. Many taxpayers who never previously received a 1099-K form would be inundated with them at the end of the year. The IRS predicted the 1099-K form will jump by $28 million, or rather um, to $44 million this year. Looking to fund the costly $1.8 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, Democrats lowered the previous threshold of at least 200 tra- uh, uh, transactions totaling $20,000, or more than just $600. There is no transaction minimum, so a person could uh, be um, one used treadmill away from well, new red tape and tax headaches. Well, the left may have been targeting high-powered online sellers and businesses, but this reporting rule would have hit women and middle uh, to low-income households. According to the survey of casual online resellers conducted by the Coalition for 1099K Fairness, many are young women and stay-at-home moms earning small amounts of income on the side. Communities of color would also be disproportionately impacted by the new reporting requirements. Again, $600 as opposed to 20000 where it was just a year ago. In the November 7th election, Ohio voters, they voted to codify abortion into the state constitution. But exit polls show that many, including conservatives and Christians, were shocked that Ohio would ever codify abortion into the state constitution. Upon a closer look, they found that Ohioans had been deceived. The ballot language referenced abortion, but mostly used euphemisms such as reproductive medical treatment or reproductive freedom. Many in the electorate were deceived by the misleading words. They voted yay without understanding. And that, I suppose, is by design. Well, the GOP has moved to designate Houthi rebels a terror organization. This after the president had removed the group from a formal listing as a terror organization. Senate Republicans are moving on legislation that would redesignate the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, another of its proxies from Yemen, as a terrorist organization, citing the group's weekend missile attacks on a U.S. warship as an alarming escalation. The legislation led by Senator Ted Cruz and six Republican colleagues will be introduced this week and will reapply all sanctions on the Houthis, 
that were lifted in 2021 when the Biden administration took office and removed the Iran-sponsored rebel group from the U.S. terror list. Since Hamas's October 7th terror attack on Israel, Iranian proxies in the region have escalated their operations, launching dozens of strikes on U.S. assets in the area. The Houthis are responsible for a spate of missile attacks on U.S. and Israeli positions during the past several weeks, including a weekend ballistic missile strike aimed at an American warship in the Gulf of Aden. Cruz and other Republicans attempted to reapply sanctions on the Houthis earlier last year, but that effort didn't pass the Democrat-controlled body. The U.S. has provided over 54,000 pounds of aid to Gaza since the ceasefire. The U.S. said it had delivered more than the 54,000 pounds of humanitarian supplies on Tuesday as a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was extended amid prisoner releases. The ceasefire has provided a window for humanitarian efforts in the small territory where people have been running out of fuel, water and food amid bombing by Israel. Gaza is controlled by Hamas which is designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. government. Governor Gavin Newsom announced millions in grant money to help local and state agencies clean up homeless camps, uh, encampments near California roads. The Democratic governor said nearly $300 million will go to local jurisdictions and the other half will go to uh, Caltrans, the state's Department of Transportation, to sweep camps on state properties such as highways, bike paths, and parks, while assisting the homeless to a in finding other places to live. We've got to move. People are counting on us, Newsom said in a news briefing on Monday. The public has had it. They're fed up. I'm fed up. We're all fed up. And the good news is the Chinese president is not visiting. That wasn't the uh, motive behind this cleanup. The largest school district in Arizona is guiding students on how to hide their gender transition from their dangerous, unreliable parents Arizona's largest school district is flouting state law and its own governing board by covertly instructing students how to assert a different gender identity at school without their parents knowing and hiding evidence of its misdeeds, according to an outspoken member of the board. Former President Trump aide Stephen Miller's America First Legal is representing Rachel Walden in her Maricopa County Superior Court lawsuit against Mesa Public Schools and Superintendent Andy Forlis which alleges they schemed to circumvent the Arizona Parents' Bill of Rights after the community learned it was blocked, uh, blocking parents' notification. Walden also claims the board never voted to adopt or authorize the contested gender transition policy, whose heading is uh, dated October, or rather August of 2015, or any of its constitutional uh, elements, which additionally determine access to restrooms, locker rooms, field trips, overnight trips, and gendered activities such as sports. And while the transgender policy created eight years ago initially required parental consent, it was revised at some point to be explicit in writing that students can veto even notification, according to the suit. Well, when will the uh, liberal media learn? The media is trying to claim a child is racist for painting his face for an NFL game. It's an uh, evergreen question because they never do. This time around, Deadspin is the perpetrator of a race hoax targeting a literal child who was just trying to enjoy the night out at a Kansas City Chiefs game. And senior writer Karan Phillips has already doubled down on his uh, smear amid justified black uh, blowback for his story. Well, the NFL needs to speak out against the, the Kansas City Chiefs fan in blackface native headdress. Uh, was Phillips' story on Deadspin run with a, a side profile photo of a young boy with black paint on his face. Of course, it was a profile and you could only see one side. 
Phillips conveniently avoided using a photo of the fan's full face, which other photos show it was painted half in black and half in red, two colors of the chief's insignia. Apparently, pesky facts got in the way of his desired narrative that a white kid showed up to a chief's game in blackface. Well, he was called out for it, but he doubled down, suggesting, well, maybe the fact that he had black on one side and red on the other was even worse. (sighs) Hopeless. Well, last we checked, the Constitution's First Amendment prohibited the government from restricting our ability to speak freely. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press and all that. So why is it that we continue to find evidence that the government is doing just that? Most insidiously, we find the government partnering with private entities to do their dirty work because while the First Amendment prevents government censorship, it doesn't prohibit private individuals or businesses from doing so. And now, as independent journalist Michael Schellenberger reports, a whistleblower has come forward with an explosive new trove of documents rivaling or exceeding the Twitter files and Facebook files in scale and importance. According to the whistleblower, one of the leaders of a mysterious group called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, a former British intelligence analyst, was in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter disinformation project to stop a repeat of 2016. Now, if, as Schellenberger claims, the documents reveal the birth of the censorship industrial complex, and if that cryptic reference, then it appears... um, they accomplished uh, a repeat of 2016, uh, rather, refers to the shocking election of Donald Trump. Then it appears they have accomplished their mission with the election of Joe Biden in 2020, establishing a censorship industrial complex. Well, Bidenomics is costing Americans more of their hard earned money via the weakening of the dollar's monetary value, thanks to sustained high inflation, devaluing the dollar by over 19 percent since 2019. But Joe Biden has also imposed significant hidden taxes on America via his regulatory state. According to the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the administration added regulations now costing the average American household $14,000 annually. Hmm. Well, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll hear from a uh, legal counsel from Alliance Defending Freedom on an Oregon law prohibiting, well, those who... A hold to a Christian worldview from adoption. We'll explain in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys submitted a formal comment on Monday with the U.S. Administration for Children and Families. It's a division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And they urged the agency to withdraw a proposed rule that will deter families from fostering children and will make it harder to place children with capable, loving parents. Well, you probably ask the question, why? Well, here to explain all of that to us is Johannes Viedmandelfans. And I apologize, I probably butchered that name. It's a beautiful name, so I apologize. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, to have you here. Now, this is a very interesting case. It originates out of Oregon. That's where I'm sitting right now. We're also talking to a Washington uh, audience. Talk about this this single mom who wants to foster a pair of siblings, but was, uh, I should say, adopt a pair of siblings, but was uh, denied that opportunity because of her Christian faith. Can you give us the backstory and where it stands? Uh, Absolutely. Well, Jessica Bates, um, as you mentioned, she's a mother of five. Uh, she felt called after listening to a radio broadcast to adopt from foster care. 
Um, but when she went through the certification process in Oregon, uh, she realized she found out that parents have to adopt the state's uh, views and ideology on gender and human sexuality just to be eligible to adopt. Um, when she voiced her religious views and told them that she couldn't say or do anything that went against her beliefs, um, although she was happy to love and accept any child for who they were, um, the state told her that that wasn't enough and turned her away. She started that process of applying to become a certified adopted uh, parent. She was adopting out of the foster care children. There was a pair of siblings, and they can be more challenging to place. And the only reason she was denied was the fact that she was ideologically at odds with what the state of Oregon is now saying uh, you must embrace in order to raise children uh, in this state. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, that's correct. Uh, in, in fact, she didn't even get so far as to pick out or, you know, to be matched with a pair of siblings. She just told them that I'm open to, I, I, you know, it's on my heart to be matched with a pair of siblings. As you mentioned, you know, they're harder to place. Not every family can take in uh, two or more children. Um, and then they asked her a series of hypotheticals, uh, including whether she would take a, a hypothetical child to receive cross-sex hormone shots. When she told them that was against her religious beliefs, they told her, well, you know, we can stop right there. Uh, if you change your mind, we're happy to pick up your application again, but we simply can't move forward with your application. Now, given what you've just described, you could assume two things. There is a glut of kids in the state of Oregon looking to be adopted who um, are experiencing uh, gender dysphoria. And the other thing is there is a surplus of families and homes available to adopt children. <laughs> Uh, you would assume both of those things are the case if you're weeding out individuals who are fully capable of raising uh, children, of adopting children. Neither of those things is the case, though, is it, in the state of Oregon and, for that matter, across the country? Uh, it's not. I mean, um, you raised two good points. So, for example, you know, Jessica, she said that she wanted to adopt a child under the age of 10. Well, you know, there's plenty of children under the age of 10. And, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, even if you think that a child who might identify as LGBT or what have you should be matched with a, a family that agrees with those viewpoints. Uh, you know, infants and toddlers, they don't understand gender identity. They don't understand gender ideology. They can't even speak oftentimes. Um, but Jessica and many people like her are categorically excluded from even being matched with those children. And then on the point about, you know, a surplus of families, uh, Oregon has actually been dinged, was recently dinged by a federal judge um, for its practice of placing children in uh, places like hotels, um, you know, having them mm -hmm. sleep overnight on a social worker's office uh, for lack of facilities and homes willing to take in these children. So as you mentioned, really, this ultimately comes down, it's a disservice to the children and it's taking away opportunities for them to find loving homes. So what happens next? I am uh, so grateful that she's willing to challenge uh, this decision. What happens next? What should we expect? So we uh, we asked the court for a preliminary injunction. Basically, we wanted immediate relief from this categorical rule because, you know, there's some urgency for Jessica's request. Um, and uh, the court uh, denied us. Um, and so the next, you know, this, this case isn't over. Uh, Jessica's going to continue standing for the parents and we're exploring all of her options, whether that's an appeal um, or what have you. But she's certainly going to continue standing for the children who, you know, these are the most vulnerable children in society. And if no one stands up for them, um, you know, that's that's 
that, that that's why that's why she filed this lawsuit. Mm. You know, one might assume, well, this is just an issue in the state of Oregon. But I did note that transgender orthodoxy might become a litmus test for parenthood, according to the logic of a new policy that's working its way through the Department of Health and Human Services under the current administration. Uh, this new idea states that any lack of affirmation constitutes a form of child abuse to foster care placement. Once that idea takes root in foster care, child protective services agencies might start applying it uh, more broadly. Again, you must embrace the LGBTQIA uh, ideology. There will be a litmus test. And if you fail that test, uh, then you could be held um, criminally or otherwise liable. So this is a an ideology that is not just isolated to the state of Oregon, but it's working its way through other uh, agencies, both state and uh, national, that would weed out uh, parents who embrace a, a Christian worldview or who are skeptical of some of the recommendations that are being made for very young children that have the potential to damage them long term. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head when it's it's the idea that to justify a categorical exclusion just because of your religious beliefs is really to say that you're unfit to parent any child. Mm -hmm. And that logic would carry through to anyone, including, you know, biological parents, um, and which we've already seen in, for example, custody disputes where parents try to use this against the other parents saying that, well, you're not willing to, quote unquote, affirm or to espouse these views. Therefore, the child is better with me and not for you. Taking these children away from the, you know, some of the parents who they need the most, right, to, to parents who can speak the truth into their lives. So it's very damaging and uh, the repercussions can go very far. Yeah. Now, in this case that you are um, going to argue, uh, is this likely to have an impact solely on this situation or might it be broadly applied all across the state of Oregon and set a precedent for other states and challenges that may come up across the country? It sort of depends on where the case is, but you know, if we end up at the Ninth Circuit, for example, the Ninth Circuit is a that jurisdiction covers the entire West Coast from Washington all the way down to Arizona. And so, you know, uh, if you know whether it's an appeal or whether it's here, uh, certainly it's something that other courts can look at. And, you know, a ruling that this policy is unconstitutional, I think, sends a very strong message that, you know, government officials, they shouldn't be put in politics above the needs of the most vulnerable children in society. And even in this situation, you know, Jessica, she just simply wants to access this service on a level playing field and not to be discriminated against based on her beliefs. And that's something that the Constitution demands. Absolutely. How optimistic are you at this early stage of what will very likely be a very long process? Well, you know, what's interesting about the court's ruling is that she agreed that this policy compelled speech, which was something that the Supreme Court recently said is almost never constitutional in the case of three or three creatives. Um, so, uh you know, I'm very optimistic because it's very clear that it does compel speech. Uh, we're talking here about, for example, uh, forcing parents to agree to use a child's self-selected pronouns that are inaccurate and don't match the biological sex. And you can't force someone to speak an ideological message that they disagree with just to access a program. The Supreme Court has said that time and again. So um, really all the court has to do is apply the existing case law and we win. Jessica wins. And that's a win for um, Jessica and it's a win for the children in the system. Well, that wouldn't be possible, except that Alliance Defending Freedom does stand up alongside those who are facing these kinds of challenges. So I want to thank you for your willingness to do that, your availability, and for taking time to talk with us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Again, my guest, Johannes Viedmalmdefans. 
There you have it. He's legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, a member of the Center for Conscience Initiative, and is uh, representing the Oregon mother uh, who is uh, appealing to the courts to stop politically motivated adoption processes. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Jeff King. He's president of the International Christian Concern on suffering in the Gazan Christian community. That's coming up next here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With the continuing turmoil in the Middle East, the Gazan Christian community is suffering the consequences of being in the crossfire of a conflict they're seldom seen or acknowledged by the media. But today we shine a light on them. Joining us to do that is the president of the International Christian Concern, Jeff King, on the suffering of the Gazan Christian community. How we as the body of Christ here, who are inexorably connected to them by virtue of our common faith, can support, pray for them, and uh, understand their plight. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. Well, first of all, let's let's talk about the Christian community uh, in Gaza. I so appreciate the international Christian concern. You've served as a, um, a conduit from the Christian church to the, the church in safe locations around the world. We can better understand and support one another. Tell us what the situation is like for Palestinian believers who are in Gaza now. Yeah, well, they are. So first of all, it's it's a small community. There's probably about 700 left, uh, 120, 150 just recently were able to get out. Um, but very small community. Um, you know, it's probably about 600 Greek Orthodox, 100 Catholics, a couple Baptists um, and some others. So it's like everybody in Gaza, look, this is a very, very tough situation. And and the way they describe it, the way the Christians describe it is as living between two hammers. Mm. Uh, and I think everyone gets that. On the one hand, you uh, you have Hamas. Uh, these are radical Islamists. They're violent and they have to keep their head down. But then you've got the Israelis uh, right across the fence. And those guys have come to blows five times, really, in just the last 10, 12 years, they've come to blows. They live between two hammers. Yeah, they're in the crossfire of this conflict. How are they Mm. received in Gaza? Um, And does the broader Christian community acknowledge their existence? Is there a connection to the church outside of that area? Yeah, there there is. Um, so it's it's such a small group, though. I don't. I wouldn't say it's forgotten. It's just you know, there's just not that many connections. Um, but living uh, in a called a country ruled by radical Islamists, they're also violent. Um, you know, like I said, they've got to keep their head down. And I was always struck. You know, back in 2007, there was a, a brother that was assassinated. And he was running a Christian bookstore, and it was really his calling, he and his wife. Uh, And uh, he was assassinated. He was grabbed, leaving work and taken away. And he called his wife and said, "Uh, I'm going to be a while. You're not going to see me for a bit. And then they found his body that night. And we worked with his wife uh, and basically got her into a home. But she had been through, she went through terrible, terrible suffering, terrible anger, Um, She just struggled with a lot of hate, but the Lord uh, just did an amazing work in her heart uh, where it was a work of forgiveness and love. And it it didn't happen all at once, but it came, she struggled with so much anger at first, Um, but it was the Lord that freed her from that hate. 
and really gave her a heart of love for the Muslims around her. So I kind of wondered, they have to keep their head down. But the answer to this conflict, the answer to these Christians is that they have to keep their heart pure. That's our calling in life. We, we stay connected with the Lord. We have to stay in love with him and be a light for him. So it's a very uh, tricky uh, you know, line that they have to walk. Uh, but that's really the key. It's the key for any of us, really, but uh, especially these brothers and sisters. Yeah, absolutely. During this conflict, and there's been a brief um, cessation of hostilities that could resume as early as this evening, the, the two-day right. extension will expire unless there's another extension applied. Uh, is it a close-knit yeah. community? Are they together uh, at this time? Are they uh, spread out over a, a broad area? How are they uh, not waiting out, but how are they surviving through this l- most latest iteration of violence? Yeah, I would say it is uh, it is a close-knit community, and it's, you know, unfortunately, division is part of life, right? And even in the Christian world where we have different denominations and viewpoints, and I think a lot of that, though, decreases when there's such mm-hmm. a heavy threat when you when you live uh, you know, with the wagon circled, and you're gonna you're gonna pull together. So it's a it's a small tight community. Uh, the Christians in the in the north uh, are still somewhat cut off, uh, just because of what's going on with the war. And from what I understand, it's the aid is not really reaching them, um, and they're struggling. So there's a, a, a natural division because of what's going on with the war. But apart from that, yeah, tight knit community. I know international Christian concern has served the the global persecuted church for many years. Um, How are you connected with them and what, if anything, are you able to provide? Obviously, encouragement and uh, and support in that way. But are you able to uh, minister to them in any tangible way? And by extension, is there a way for the rest of us who are concerned for them uh, to help? And you're speaking of Christians in Gaza, not the not the broader persecuted community. Correct. Yeah. So um, we haven't been uh, sending in aid. It's just kind of an impossible situation right now when you have a war zone. And it reminds me a little what was going on um, with the Taliban and the Christians in Afghanistan and as we were trying to extract them and uh, crazy situation. So, you know, for us, you know, in the past with, you know, for instance, with Pauline and Rami, uh, the uh, gentleman that was killed, you know, we were able to help, but it hasn't exactly been a hot spot for us. It's not the heaviest persecution, mm-hmm. but they, even though they live under constant threat, and this is so much of a, a refugee crisis. So for right now, I, I think one of the biggest things we're trying to do is just to spread the word and to be a witness and to say our brothers and sisters are there you know, they need our prayer. They need our love. And, and people feel it. They feel there's a, a linking in the spirit between mm-hmm. all this. And they feel when the Christian community is, is lifting them up. So that's what I would say. You know, when I've had connection with members of the persecuted church, there's an expectation that we all as believers take the scripture seriously. So we pray for them as if we mm-hmm. ourselves are being persecuted. Mm-hmm. So I do think there is an encouragement knowing that faithful believers who know the scripture mm-hmm. are praying for them. And so I, I hope that we are taking that seriously and the tremendous opportunity we have to access the throne of grace on their behalf in the midst of what's a very difficult uh, situation. I know um, ICC has been um, shining a light on the persecuted church in general for many years. You work with government leaders to free imprisoned yeah. Christians. You challenge countries that persecute. You bring persecution awareness to uh, both the sacred and the uh, the secular world. 
Um, in general, the persecuted church exists in the world. How how are we faring as in terms of our response to them um, in encouragement, in prayer? And are they encouraged and receiving that in a way that that helps to buoy them up? You know, it probably depends on the area. And, and in the big picture, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the Western church is, church is under attack. And, and I would say, first of all, so, you know, what we're experiencing in a very small way, I'd say we're experiencing here in the West, the, the very beginnings of persecution. It's persecution mm-hmm. light. And I don't want to take away from anybody's struggle because there's some real serious things that have happened to people with career and, and firings and being cut off from uh, media, et cetera. But in in light of persecution out there, it's persecution light. Um, and yet, this is what's interesting is, you know, anything that we see overseas with the dictator, the despot, where they're trying to strangle Christianity. And they'll say, they all say, we have religious freedom. And, and yet, what they're saying, though, the rules are, you can't bring it into the public square. You have to keep that quiet. You keep that at home. You keep that to yourself. And there's no problem. So that's First of all, what we're starting to see here, and it's just the same tactics. And I don't think so. First of all, Christians are not really aware. They don't have a context for what's happening. Um, So and at the same time, because we're starting to feel this pressure, um, we're probably a a little more inward focused right now. Um, But there are those in the church that care. Uh, they are a constant, they, they are the Jeremiah's out there in the church that care about their persecuted brother and are aware and are talking to the brothers and sisters and say, let's remember them. This is mm-hmm. what the Lord said. And, and I always point to one body. You go do a study on that. We are one body. What does it mean? Um, it's not a marketing slogan. The, the body, Jesus, inhabits the true Christian. And so he's all over the globe and where uh, the believer is in prison or being attacked or tortured, the Lord is inside that believer. And so we just have a, um, an obligation, as you pointed out, to, to care for these, to reach mm-hmm. out for them, to love on them. Yeah. For listeners who are interested in the work that you do, the International Christian Concern, what's the best for, way for them to connect? Because that is a good way for us to stay uh, informed, uh, to know how to pray and, for, and where to direct our prayers. What's the best way to connect? Well, I'd say, first of all, just go to persecution.org, and, and, but that's kind of a, a big melting pot of all kinds of stuff. And I would say, you know, if, if there is one lesson I would get across to people, it's that the, this is a type of ministry that is going to build your life like nothing else. The spiritual lessons that come out of the persecuted church are just life-changing. And I would say, if people send me an, uh, a request, you send it to my email, jeff at persecution.org, and say, I'd like to get your free book, Last Words of the Martyrs. So they can connect with us that way. Give us your, your shipping, your name, and your shipping information. We're going to send you out a free book. Uh, and then get you connected with the newsletter, too. So it's Jeff at Persecution.org. Well, that's a very generous offer, Jeff at Persecution.org. I'll make sure that's on our website. Well, Jeff King, I appreciate the work of International Christian Concern, and you're taking the time to talk with us here today. Oh, and thank you so much for what you're doing and, and your strong and constant voice out there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Talk Jeff King is president of International Christian Concern on the suffering in the Uh, Christian community in Gaza. We can certainly keep them in our prayers as they uh, endure what's what's about to resume in the next day or two if the uh, ceasefire does not hold. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you're listening in Seattle, we want to wish you a 
a good evening. I want to thank Pedro Bartes for engineering and producing in the Seattle area. In Portland, we're going to continue taking a look at some of the headlines, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, I spoke with Johannes von Malmdepons, who is a legal counsel with the Lions Defending Freedom, talking about an Oregon mom who wants to adopt but was told that her sexual ideology did not fit Oregon's policy. Well, I mentioned during that conversation that this um, in position, this litmus test is not limited to the state of Oregon. Tyler O'Neill writing about the lack of affirmation of of child's sexual orientation is now going to be considered child abuse under new rules proposed under the federal government. And he writes that transgender orthodoxy may soon become a litmus test for parenthood, according to the logical logic rather of a new policy working its way through the Department of Health and Human Services under President Joe Biden. Now, this would not only apply to parents who are seeking to foster and adopt, but could apply to biological parents as well. A new rule in HHS's administration for children and families would apply the idea that any lack of affirmation constitutes a form of child abuse to foster care placements. Once that idea takes root in foster care, child protective service agencies might start applying it more broadly to biological families, for example. The rule would reinterpret the Social Security Act, which requires agencies to ensure that each child in foster care receives safe and proper care. The rule would lay out steps agencies have to take to meet that requirement for LGBTQIA plus children defined as kids who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning intersex, as well as children are uh, who are non-binary or have non-conforming gender identity or expression, most of whom have no idea what any of that means. Well, before agencies place a child with a foster parent known as a provider, that person must establish an environment free of hostility, mistreatment or abuse. We all agree with that, but it goes on on the child's LGBTQIA status. Receive training to be prepared with the appropriate knowledge and skills to provide for the needs of the child related to the child's self-identified sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, and must be able to facilitate the child's access to age-appropriate resources, services, activities, like a gay pride parade, that support their health and well-being, end quote. Well, as the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Rachel Morrison pointed out for the Federalist Society, the rule doesn't define hostility, mistreatment, or abuse. However, it does clarify that a provider who attempted to undermine, suppress, or change the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of a child, including through the use of so-called conversion therapy, would not be a safe and appropriate placement. In other words, if there's some confusion, if there's uh, uh, threats to self-harm, if you seek counseling, that would be considered conversion therapy and you would be subject to the same uh, penalty. Well, the proposed rule cites medical associations such as the American Psychological Association to claim that efforts to undermine, suppress or change sexual orientation, gender identity or gender expression are not supported by evidence and have been rejected as harmful. While the rule doesn't uh, acknowledge that gender ideology has uh, infiltrated these medical associations, that that many doctors, including those who once embraced gender ideology, have warned against confusing children on their gender and putting uh, putting them on a path to mutilating their own bodies. Dr. Stephen B. Levine, for example, a psychiatrist and early proponent of transgender medical interventions, 
joined and briefly helped lead the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, which later become, became rather the World International Gender Dysphoria Association. He ultimately resigned his membership in 2002 upon concluding that the organization had, and I quote, become dominated by politics and ideology rather than by scientific process or progress, end quote. Well, Levine explains that there is no consensus or agreed standard of care concerning therapeutic approaches to child or adolescent gender dysphoria. He noted that gender identity is not biologically based and empirically not fixed for many individuals, end quote. Well, contrary to the transgender activists' claims, many doctors have raised serious concerns about the long-term effects of gender-affirming care, as it's called. Cross-sex hormones can weaken children's bones and make them more prone to heart disease. So-called puberty blockers, often billed as fully reversible, involve introducing a disease into a child's body and make puberty harder to start again should the child change his or her mind. European countries, long considered more progressive than the U.S., they found a lack of evidence for medical interventions on children, and they're recommending a watchful waiting approach for minors. Ultimately, gender ideology rests on the claim that a nebulous gender identity is more important than an individual's biological sex. If a biological male claims the identity is female, society must consider him a a woman and allow him to enter women's restrooms, prisons and sports teams, even though some men pose a threat to women in intimate situations and enjoy biological advantages in many sports. Similarly, this ideology encourages uh, bodily alterations to make a male appear female and vice versa, despite the lack of evidence that such interventions actually improve well-being over the long haul. Well, this idea is particularly harmful for children who are just learning what it means to be male or female. If a boy likes to play with Barbie dolls, that doesn't mean he's really a girl. And if a girl likes to play with G.I. Joes, that doesn't mean she's really a boy. Yet the ideology behind transgender identity urges parents to abandon all sanity and declare that such kids are transgender. Any attempt to resolve this dissonance through mainstream talk therapy is ipso facto a form of conversion therapy to be condemned as harmful. Yet Levine argues that affirming a transgender identity is a powerful psychotherapeutic intervention that will set kids on the path to mutilation and sterilization long before they have any concept about what their own fertility means. Under the president's proposed new rules, any potential foster parent who aims to protect a child from this confusion and damage may soon face expulsion from the program and even worse, be labeled a child abuser. Well, that means the process will be designed to weed out guardians who actually would take good care of the kids and enable guardians who would assist in harming them. Well, in this topsy-turvy world, biology takes a backseat to a kid's uh, insistence that he or she is really the opposite sex sex, rather, even if the child might just as well identify as Queen Elsa or um, a Tyrannosaurus uh, Rex. Well, the rule justifies uh, uh, justifies this by claiming that kids in the foster care system are more likely to identify as LGBTQIA plus. And it seems to me answering the question as to why that's the case. Uh, is probably more significant than the solution that they're proposing, i.e. to face gender confusion. Well, this means they're more vulnerable to the damage of gender ideology, not less. They need someone to protect them from gender-affirming care, and Biden seems dead set on preventing that protection. Sadly, Health and Human Services rule is not the first time Americans have faced this type of policy. Uh, It has been the case in several states across the country. 
Uh, ultimately, Americans can't have it both ways. Either it's a child, it's a child abuse to deny a child's transgender identity, or it's child abuse to encourage experimental medical alterations that will leave that child stunted, scarred, and infertile. Well, those are the uh, uh, on the left seem bent on uh, forcing gender ideology in the name of safety, and Americans need to stand up and say no. Thankfully, Health and Human Service Administration for Children and Families, they have to read every single written comment that concerned Americans send on that rule. Americans um, may make their voices heard um, by communicating with Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families. And time is short. It is amazing where we find ourselves uh, today. Uh, Now, I'm not going to start the next story because it's going to take us a bit longer than we have before the next break. But when we do return, we're going to talk about the creepy, all-seeing eye of geofencing. We learned about it in 2020. It involved a church uh, in particular, and we'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back for the last segment and to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as worshipers gathered at the Calvary Chapel in 2020, they were being watched from above. No, no, no. I don't mean watched from there. I'm talking about a little bit lower. Satellites were locking in on cell phones owned by members of the non-denominational Protestant Church in San Jose, California. Their location eventually worked its way to a private company, which then sold the information to the government of Santa Clara County. Well, this data, along with observations from enforcement officers on the ground, was used to levy heavy fines against the church for violating COVID-19 restrictions regarding public gatherings. After all, the church was non-essential. Every Sunday, Calvary's assistant pastor, Carson Atherley, would later testify the officers uh, would serve me a notice of violation during or after church service. Well, Calvary is suing the county for its use of location data, a controversial tool increasingly deployed by government at all levels, notably in a relation to the U.S. Capitol riot on January 6, 2021. While enabling law enforcement to more easily identify potential offenders, the practice called geofencing has also emerged as a cutting-edge privacy issue, raising constitutional issues involving warrantless searches, and with Calvary Chapel, religious liberty. We are in the space between the emergence of this technological practice and courts having ruled on its constitutionality. Um, Alex Matthews, who's a national chair for Restore the Fourth, a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to the protection of the Fourth Amendment, which protects Americans' rights against unreasonable search and seizure. It used to be the physical connection that you had with law enforcement. Now it doesn't matter. You can be seen from, as I mentioned before, above. Now, geofencing also often begins with an innocent click. Smartphone apps uh, ask if they can access location to improve service. When users say yes, they often don't realize that apps that help them drive, cook, or pray are likely reselling their information to far-flung organizations and entities for profit. This and other information detailing people's behaviors and preference is valuable for businesses trying to target customers. The global location intelligence market is estimated at $16 billion last year and growing, according to Grandview research. Well, while it's um, legal for private companies to broker this information, constitutional questions arise when government accesses data from a third party that it would uh, be prohibited from collecting on its own. Well, the lawsuit filed by Calvary Chapel 
uh, argues that Santa Clara County carried out a warrantless surveillance of the church when it acquired information in 2020 on the church's foot traffic patterns for analysis by a research team from Stanford University. Court documents show the researchers acquired the information, which originated with Google Maps from the location data company SafeGraph, which Calvary is also suing. Geofencing allows users to build a fence around certain areas or points of interest, such as Calvary Chapel or the area near the Capitol on January 6th, and see when uh, people enter that space. It's becoming routine for law enforcement agencies to use warrants to require companies like Google to hand over location data that may be connected to criminal activity. Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican out of Ohio, recently wrote a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland saying... To use geofence warrants um, raises serious constitutional concerns. Privacy advocates and a bipartisan group of legislators uh, say that acquisition of such information without a warrant presents a troubling and relatively new constitutional dilemma. Uh, that never entered the minds of the uh, the framers of the Constitution. Well, data brokers, including SafeGraph, insist that their information is um, anonymized, uh, but it is precisely the lack of specificity that worries critics. There's no particular individual who government is suspicious of. Uh, one Electric Frontier Foundation uh, researcher says it's a dragnet. Well, moreover, there's no guarantee that the data collected through geofencing stays anonymous. It's um, often very easy to take supposedly de-identified data and re-identify a person. Uh, and it's very, very easy to do that with location data. Well, at Calvary Chapel, for example, in-person surveillance conducted by the county, as well as numerous in-person depositions of chapel members and employees during the previous legal uh, um, uh, confrontations between the uh, county and the church that began in 2020 would have provided local officials with detailed knowledge of who was on the premises and when. In any event, critics say law enforcement's use of geofencing, even when it's backward uh, or rather backed by a warrant, violates the Fourth Amendment. Geofencing proponents argue that it falls under the administrative search exception of the Fourth Amendment, which lets regulatory enforcement personnel conduct warrantless searches when the greater good is at issue, i.e. police sobriety checkpoints, airport TSA scans and so on. Well, in their complaint, Calvary Chapel attorneys, they assert that the county is arguing, in effect, that as long as they call it research, any level of government can target and spy on any individual or group at any time for any duration and And if they so choose, they can wield the collected data against said individuals or groups who oppose their orders, end quote. Well, pushback is mounting against the sharing of location data. In a 2022 letter to Congress, numerous privacy and civil liberties groups petitioned the four committee hearings on a bill called the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. Well, the bill, which has a companion in the Senate introduced in 2021, would prohibit warrantless government uh, purchases of cell phone location data from third party brokers. It passed unanimously through the House Judiciary Committee 30 to 0 this past July and awaits full review by the House. So a rather interesting um, privacy concern uh, that has emerged. Well, in another story, a 37-year-old Christian theology lecturer in the United Kingdom is suing his former employer after being fired and allegedly threatened with a referral to counterterrorism authorities for a social media post discussing the Christian view of homosexuality. 
Homosexuality is invading the church. Evangelicals no longer see the severity of this because they're busy apologizing for their apparent barbaric homophobia, whether or not it's true. Dr. Aaron Edwards, a theologian who formerly taught at the Methodist-run Cliff College in Derbyshire, England, wrote in February on a post on X. This is a gospel issue, by the way. If sin is no longer sin, we no longer need a savior, he posted. Well, Cliff College suspended Edwards in March following the theologian social media post and allegedly threatened to report the lecturer to the British um, Prevent uh, Counterterrorism Program, a claim denied by the college. A Christian newspaper, Harbinger uh, Daily, reported. Well, Edwards was later fired for bringing the college into disrepute, according to Harbinger's Daily. The lecturer was dismissed for allegedly refusing to delete the controversial social media post, according to Christian uh, Christian Today, with Cliff College claiming that Edwards' posts violated the institution's social media policy. Well, Cliff College in Derbyshire, England, sacked and threatened to report the theologian for a viral tweet in which he said homosexuality is invading the church, and the college took issue. Well, the language the theologian used in his social media post is inappropriate and unacceptable and does not represent either the views or ethos of Cliff College, the college said in a statement. Homosexuality is considered an abomination, according to the Bible, a view held by all major Abrahamic faiths. Edwards sued Cliff College, seeking damages and accusing the Institute of harassment, discrimination and unlawful termination. Specifically, Edwards accused Cliff College of being disproportionate in its handling of the situation with a dis- missile proceedings lacking requisite fairness. Anyone concerned about academic freedom, Christian freedoms, and free speech should be deeply concerned by what has happened to me, Edwards told a British newspaper, The Telegraph. The Christian Legal Center is helping Edwards with his lawsuit against his employer. He claims that his termination resulted in him suffering severe physical distress and harmed his ability to seek employment elsewhere in the British higher education system. The tweet was not defamatory. It was not an attack on any colleague or individual. It was not abusive. It was not an extremist religious view, he said. It was addressing, uh, addressed rather to evangelicals as a point of doctrine, and it has been misunderstood by many who wish to cause personal and institutional trouble for those who express that view, the outlet reported. Well, the, as internal uh, processes remain ongoing, we are unable to respond to specific issues, the college told the Telegraph. As a Methodist institution, Cliff College is committed to being a safe and hospitable place where those with differing convictions are welcomed and encouraged, but apparently not uh, free to debate issues that are controversial. We'll continue to follow that story should it develop any further. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program and Dave King for engineering a portion of today's program as well. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.